Welcome to the fourth season of Version 20 Podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to this week's episode. Born in 1985 in Hampshire, England, Joanna Yates grew up with her older brother Chris and parents David and Teresa. Joe, as she liked to be called, was bubbly and bright. At five foot four, she was petite with short blonde hair and blue eyes. Intelligent, she attended a private boarding school where she earned all A's. She went on to college and received a degree in landscape architecture. She got a job with an architecture firm in Winchester, located 60 miles from London. In September 2008, she took a job at a firm in Bristol. That's where she met Greg Reardon, a tall architect with broad shoulders, short dark hair, and dark eyes. He was attracted to her kindness, her beauty, and her mind. He appreciated that Joe made it easy for people to be around her. She didn't dwell on things. Rather, she shrugged it off and got on with life. Soon, the two began dating. The couple shared many interests outdoors, including biking, rowing, and surfing. They spent their summer camping and winter snowboarding and skiing. The couple posed for photos, always smiling, side by side, with their arms wrapped tightly around each other. In October 2010, the couple moved in together and rented an apartment 10 minutes away in Clifton. The Victorian house with its brick exterior sat stately behind a rock wall, four stories tall with arched windows. There were two apartments on the first floor. Joe and Greg moved into apartment number one. The living room faces street with its entrance tucked around the side. Entering the bright yellow hallway, there was a mirror and a coat rack. The bedroom was to the right, and to the left was a kitchen and dining room. In November, Jo completed her master's degree in garden design at Bristol University. It was also a milestone for the couple's relationship as they celebrated their second anniversary. 27-year-old Greg was in love with Jo and had started thinking about proposing. He knew his parents would be proud of him for finding someone as perfect as Joe. The couple settled into their new apartment with a black and white cat, Bernard, and soon began making plans for Christmas. They decorated and put up a tree. Joe had plans to take Greg home to her parents for Christmas. Things were getting serious between them. The weekend before Christmas, Greg made plans to visit his brother in Sheffield. He planned to be back Saturday night, as he and Joe had plans to watch their favorite TV show. Greg wasn't worried about Joe. 
but she was nervous about being home alone and made plans to keep herself busy. She was going to do some baking for a party they had planned with friends the following week. On Friday, December 17th, the couple met at 5 p.m. in the lobby where they worked to say a quick goodbye. The couple kissed and hugged one another. Then Greg stopped at their apartment to pick up Joe's car for the trip, but had trouble starting it. With the help of his landlord and neighbor, Chris Jeffries, he managed to get the car fired up and headed out. Meanwhile, Joe, who was dressed for the snowy weather, in jeans, boots, and a white coat, with a blue satchel thrown over her shoulder, met up with her co-workers at a neighborhood pub. She enjoyed a pint and a half of cider, and after a couple hours, left for the 20-minute walk home. She stopped at a supermarket and bought two bottles of cider. Continuing her walk, she called her best friend Rebecca and made plans for Christmas Eve. At 8.20 p.m., Joe texted her friend Matthew, asking if he wanted to get together for a drink. But Matthew didn't immediately see Joe's text, so she continued towards home. At 8.40 p.m., she stopped at a grocery store and bought pizza. As she neared their apartment, Joe was spotted by a local priest. Walking up the driveway, she passed within a few feet of her neighbor, 33-year-old Vincent Tabak. He and his girlfriend Tanya Morrison lived in apartment number two on the first floor. Although the couple shared a wall, she and Greg had never met Vincent and Tanya, as their entrance was at the back of the building. Vincent was an engineer with a PhD who was an expert in the use of space in office buildings and had just returned from working abroad. Joe wasn't looking forward to being alone, and being friendly, she invited her neighbor inside for a drink. Vince's girlfriend was attending a Christmas party at work, so on a whim, he accepted. Joe hung up her coat inside the door, took off her boots, and put her keys in her satchel. Vincent followed her in. He thought Joe was pretty and felt an attraction towards her. Joe cracked open the two ciders and took a few sips. The two were facing each other when Joe, in her outgoing way, said something to Vincent that made him take notice. Was she flirting with him? He thought so. So he slid his hand behind her back and leaned in to kiss her. But Joe screamed. BBC News reported that the loudness of her voice shocked him, and he quickly covered her mouth with his hand and wrapped his other hand around her throat and tried to silence her. People arriving to a party across the street heard a loud scream, then nothing. With her voice muffled, Joe fought back, and the couple struggled. Trying to loosen his grip, she kicked and flailed her arms, trying to break free. She could feel her body getting bruised, but didn't stop. Vincent was a foot taller than her and overpowered her. She struggled to breathe as he squeezed her neck and kept squeezing until 
she stopped moving. Joe died at 25. Vincent panicked. What had he done? He hoisted her lifeless body up and carried her around to the back of the apartment building where his car was parked. He opened the trunk and placed Joe inside. Vincent texted his girlfriend, telling her that he missed her and was bored without her. Driving, he stopped at a grocery store and picked up beer and potato chips. While there, he texted his girlfriend again, telling her he couldn't wait to pick her up. At 9.20 p.m., Matthew returned Joe's text, saying he couldn't make it that night and waited for her reply. At 10.35 p.m., Greg arrived in Sheffield and called Joe's cell phone. Receiving no answer, he tried their landline. Then he texted her. Just three miles from their home, Vincent turned on to Longwood Lane near the Long Ashton Golf Club. On the side of the road, he parked the car against the curb, opened the trunk, and attempted to heave Joe's body up and over his shirt wall and out of sight. But he gave up. Instead, he laid her body down on the cold, hard ground. Her jeans still buttoned, her one foot bare, her pink top pushed up on one side over her head. Vincent scooped up dead leaves and used them to cover her body packing them tightly around her. Afterwards, Vincent went to meet his girlfriend. The couple walked arm in arm while he pretended like nothing had happened. Saturday afternoon, Greg called Joe's cell phone, then again later that night. Outwardly, Vincent continued on with his life that weekend, but inside, he couldn't rest and used his computer to visit the police website to see if Joe had been reported missing. Then he searched for a map of Longwood Lane. Sunday night, Greg arrived home at 8 p.m. Entering, he saw Joe's boots were in the middle of the hallway and several coats were scattered on the floor. There were lights on in the hall and in the living room not seeing Joe, Greg thought she must have gone out in a hurry and didn't have time to tidy up. He began wandering through the apartment, picking items up. He spotted a half-drank bottle of cider in the kitchen and finished it. Joe often left half-full drinks around, and he thought nothing of it. At 9 p.m., Greg called Joe's cell phone. He was shocked to hear it ringing. He looked around and found it in the pocket of Joe's white coat. Craig began to get concerned, then calmed himself down by saying she must have gone out for the evening and forgotten it. But then he worried she might be cold without her coat. Trying to quell the fear building up, he continued to tidy up their apartment. Then he came across her satchel and opened it 
to find her glasses, wallet, and keys. That's when he panicked. He called her friends while Bernard snuggled in for some attention. Greg then noticed that their cat seemed hungry and his litter box hadn't been cleaned. Just after midnight, Greg knew he couldn't wait any longer and called Joe's parents. Minutes later, he called police and reported her missing. Police arrived and after seeing Joe's coat, boots, and cell phone, knew this was a high-risk missing persons case and began knocking on neighbors' doors. One of the first was Vincent and Tanya's. Greg was with them when he heard Vincent say that he hadn't left the apartment Friday night. Inside Joe and Greg's apartment, police found the receipt for the cider and the pizza, but they found no sign of the pizza. Monday, police put out a public appeal for information on Joe and the missing pizza. Vincent went online and searched to see when the garbage would be picked up. Then he searched to see what the sentence for murder was and how many years was manslaughter. Then he went back to the police website looking for any new information. On Tuesday, a press conference was held and Joe's parents told Channel 4, Joe, we want you to know that we love you and are desperate to know you are safe and well. Please get in touch as soon as possible and confirm you are okay. As Greg looked out into the sea of cameras, he knew deep down how this was going to end. A couple days later, in another public appeal, her parents tearfully said that they feared Joe had been abducted and begged the kidnapper. If she's dead, please tell somebody where she is. Outside, the temperature was dropping and snow was falling on Joe. Thirty detectives worked full-time on the case, with another forty staff helping them. On Christmas Eve, police released closed-circuit TV footage of Joe buying pizza and cider. Joe's friends and colleagues set up a website and spread the news far and wide on social media and circulated missing posters. Her father told the media, I've got to believe that she's alive. If it turns out she isn't, I still want her back. I still want to hold her one last time. As people poured into church for midnight mass, they prayed for Joe's safe return. Christmas morning, a couple rose early, opened their gifts, and by 9 a.m. were walking their dog on Longwood Lane. When they walked past a mound of snow on the side of the road, out of the corner of the man's eye, he spotted a patch of skin and some denim and realized there was a body under the snow. Fifteen officers and police cars arrived and blocked off the road. Soon, crime tape surrounded Greg and Joe's apartment, and investigators could be seen removing the front door. 
A reconstruction of Joe's last moments was aired on BBC's Crime Watch. Over 300 tips flooded in. Then on December 30th, police brought Joe and Greg's landlord in for questioning. Chris resided one floor above them and had helped Greg start Joe's car, so he knew she'd be alone. But after three days of interrogation, they had no reason to hold him, and he was released. Forensic testing found male DNA on Joe's chest and on her jeans from when she was carried. And it confirmed that Joe did not eat that pizza. In the new year, police continued to investigate Joe's murder and interviewed over 200 people. When Chris was arrested, Tanya and Vincent were in Holland celebrating the new year. Tanya called police to report that Vincent had told her he'd seen Chris's car facing in different directions that night. A detective traveled to Amsterdam to interview Vincent. During the six-hour discussion, the detective noticed that Vincent seemed to be overly interested in the police investigation and asked why police had taken away Joe and Greg's door. Then he let us slip that he had left his apartment twice that night before picking up Tanya. The detective immediately picked up on this contradiction from his earlier alibi and asked him for a DNA swab. On January 20th, Vincent was arrested. During his interrogation, he suddenly recalled that he had eaten pizza that night Joe was murdered. Then he asked to speak to a priest and confessed. He denied he murdered Joe. Instead, he admitted to manslaughter. Ten months later, Vincent went on trial. Forensics had identified Joe's blood in Vincent's car, and fibers from his black jacket were found on Joe's body, and his DNA was a perfect match. The jurors were taken to Joe and Greg's apartment. Forensics had removed the carpets, and the walls were black from being dusted for fingerprints. Although Greg had removed his personal belongings, Joe's remained the same as they had been that fateful night. Tinsel still hung in the living room, a Christmas card set on a bookcase ready to be mailed. Joe's shoes and clothes sat untouched. On the bedside table sat her comb, nearby her perfume and nail polish. Next, they toured Vincent's apartment before traveling to Longwood Lane. After three days of deliberation, Vincent was found guilty and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. We're taking a short break for the holidays. Next week, we're featuring a recap of one of Murder in 20's most intriguing episodes. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. 
We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effect from Fasting Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>